0: Uh, Last week, we began talking about this thing of checkup, how periodically we will get a physical checkup and check on our physical well-being. And there are certain key health indicators when you go and do that. You go and you see the doctor and they check your blood pressure and your temperature and your heart rate and breathing and various other things. And uh, last week, as I already said, we we dove into the subject of our spiritual health. We look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Kind of a key passage on this where there are four spiritual indicators. And one of the things we noted there in that passage is that the uh, followers of Jesus in the early church were, were devoted, it says. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's to the word of God. They were devoted to fellowship. That's this, this whole thing of a relation, being connected to others. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayer. And uh, we noted that there's a big, big difference between being devoted and just dabbling. And Jesus doesn't call any of us to be dabblers, but he calls all of us to be Devoted. And so we, we use this scale in the bulletin to kind of grade ourselves, to listen to God and, Lord, where do you want to speak to me? Is there something you want me to do? And we're gonna be asking you to do that same thing, use this scale in the program this morning in a similar way. This morning, we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna talk about another area that's absolutely essential to our well-being and our health. Spiritual, absolutely. It's, it's of paramount importance that we examine ourselves spiritually. This area this morning that we're gonna dive into, and I know you're excited about it, financial health. Yeah, good, right? <laughs> Boy, if I'd only known, I wouldn't have come. That's what some of you are thinking, I know. Uh, I was thinking about where we live. Part of what's so weird about where we live is people look so successful. You know, we live in nice houses, we drive nice cars, we wear decent clothes, we have good jobs, and so. And so we begin to think that everybody around us has their financial life together. Everybody that is except me, right? Everybody else understands how the economy works, knows how to make money, and so everybody has their house paid off. Everybody else can afford their lifestyle. Everybody else knows what number they need for retirement, if you've seen that commercial. Everybody that is, you know, except me. The truth is, uh, research points this out too, most of us have a considerable amount of anxiety around this matter of finances. We live under financial pressure. Uh, Here in Denver, the price of rental properties is increasing 3.4 times faster than anywhere else in our nation. The median home price in Metro Denver is $353,500. That's up 12.3% from the same quarter last year. Cost of living, is it getting less? No, it is not. Cost of education, is it shrinking? No, it is not. Levels of indebtedness are not declining either, and good jobs for some are getting harder and harder to find. All of that adds up to something I just call angst, financial angst. The point is that despite appearances, we still worry. We actually worry quite a bit about this area of our lives. Finances are a great concern. You may not know it, but God does not intend for you to live under financial anxiety and pressure. He doesn't. He actually wants us to be good managers of our finances. That's what he wants for. Sometimes in churches, when you talk about money, the only thing that we ever talk about is one aspect of it, which is giving. But actually, all of our financial lives matter to God. He cares, he wants to be involved in them. And he has quite a bit to say to us in the Bible. Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible, you might be familiar with an Old Testament book called the Book of Proverbs in it in chapter 31, it talks about a woman. It calls her a woman of noble character. And it's kind of striking how she's described. It praises her in particular for her financial leadership in her family, extended family. It praises her for her financial ability. Proverbs 31 says she provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. That's something to make more money. She sees that her trade is profitable. How many would like to say that? Yeah. Well, her trading is profitable. She opens her arms, it says, to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. This is a generous, gracious woman. When it snows, she has no fear for her household. And the point that all of that is making is that this woman is as ready as ready can be for whatever's going to come. She's planning. She's thinking ahead. She's working hard. And again, she's even generous, and she's called a woman of noble character. She's not living under a a sense of financial burden and anxiety and pressure. Today, we're gonna talk about four key indicators of financial health. Uh, These indicators are really basic, but they are really, really important. Now, I know many of you, yeah, you're, you're ready for finance class 401, 501, 601. This is 101 this morning. This is 101. And I know I get it. You're all financially sophisticated. You're very wealthy. You're all financially literate. And so you don't need this stuff. But I would encourage you to be patient because the person seated next to you does. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. There is biblical wisdom to be had about this thing of finances. It says, and what I'm going to say this morning is as basic as I know how to make it, but to make this helpful, again, use that little scale in your bulletin. And even if you don't have a pen and can't mark it, you'll make me feel better. If with the appropriate time, you just open it up and pretend to be filling it out. Okay. Now I'll be asking you at certain points to make your mark. A lot of people get into trouble financially because they never actually get honest with themselves, let alone God, or if they're married with their spouse, This is an area of finances where there can be a lot of secrecy. Uh, And this would be a great time to break that and be honest with yourself and with God. Here we go, four key financial indicators. Number one, have a realistic budget. Have a realistic budget. Be able to say honestly with integrity, I have a realistic budget. There is a lot in the Bible about this, more than you might think, Proverbs 24. Finish your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Interesting, interesting statement. There's actually kind of two categories and two consequences here. Outdoor work and fields, uh, get that ready first, we're told. Indoor work, the idea of building your house, do that second. And here's the idea that's behind this passage. Financially, there are two directions that money can flow, right? Money can flow toward you, or money can flow away from you. If it flows toward you, what do we call it? Income, if it flows away from you, what do we call it? Yeah, and if more is is flowing toward you than is flowing away from you, then you might be in good shape. But if more is flowing away from you, if you are spending more than you earn, then there is a good chance that you're under a lot of financial pressure. In the ancient world, they lived, of course, in an agricultural economy. Fields were where they grew crops, crops they could sell, they could eat. Crops, in other words, were income-producing kinds of things. They were assets. Houses, on the other hand, houses cost money. Houses were income-consuming. A a, a field, uh, therefore, in the ancient world was considered an asset. A house would be considered a a liability. You're with me so far. Question In our world, what's a house? Is it an asset or a liability? Well, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Now, hang with me for a sec. There's a guy named Robert Schiller. He's a Yale economist. He's pretty bright about this. He won a Nobel Prize for research that he did in this area. And he poses this question So, from 1890 to 2012, adjusted for inflation, okay? How much did housing prices in the United States rise? That's his question. That's a 122 year period, adjusted for inflation. I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what percentage do you think housing prices rose during that 122 year period? How much did the price of a house increase in the US? Go ahead and whisper your number, your percentage. Now, I sort of tipped my hand a little bit. You can, you can guess that there's something up my sleeve, even though I don't have sleeves here. But this, Robert, this is Robert Schiller, the Yale economist, not me, okay? His answer, again, adjusted for inflation, 0%. 0%. It didn't go up. Now, I say this partly because we live in such a weird time and in such a a weird area. Housing prices around here are bizarre. We get the idea that if I can just get into a house, that's my golden ticket to the future right there. My golden ticket. I won't have to worry about money ever again. I can blow off things like budgets. I can laugh at the future. I'm in a house. I'm doing great. Things are good. But most of us here remember not too many years ago, around 2008, when the market did something very interesting. Between two, the latter part of 2007 and 2011, the value of American homes dropped $7 trillion during that, uh, just those few years. And people prior to that who were thinking, I've just got to get into a home. That's financial security. They found that there were all kinds of lending institutions that were more than happy to make all kinds of actually crazy loans to them. Uh, And these were particularly people who were kind of financially on the margin, maybe under-resourced people, uh, who when the market then crashed in 2008, because they had purchased something they couldn't really afford, they and everything they had was just crushed in that economic downturn and my point is just this it's super simple point a lot of times young people will take on unbelievable pressure uh, because they buy into the myth that's out there that if i can just get into a house that's the golden ticket Now, they're actually, if I can just live a lifestyle like this, that's the golden ticket. If I can just drive a car like this, that's the golden ticket. If I can, we actually have quite a list of things we'd put in that category. We think that these things are keys or indicators of success. But all I'm saying is that a lot of times it doesn't work that way. Not really. And I know I get it. This is all way too basic. But I'm just saying, establish a budget and stick to it. A budget can tell you what you should be purchasing and what you shouldn't. Uh, A realistic budget helps you know when and where to spend your money. It helps you to avoid bad decisions. There is absolutely no substitute for actually living by a budget. You want to moan with me a little bit? Uh, Yeah. Again, if I'd have known this is what we were talking about, I wouldn't have come. The writer of Proverbs says, get your fields ready first. Know what your income is. And then build your house. See, he's talking about living off of a budget. Figure out your income. You know, Jesus was very familiar with this concept don't spend what you don't have. Uh, he told a story one time uh, to make actually another point. This is in Luke 14. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower and the tower he's talking about is a tower that overlooks your, your vineyards. It's a protection tower to keep uh, critters out of your vineyards and so on. He says, if a person wants to build a tower, will they not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, Jesus goes on to apply that really to the whole idea of following him, count the cost before following him. But don't miss the fact. Don't miss the fact that Jesus considers this just common sense wisdom. Don't spend money you don't have. Figure out what your income is, and then, you know, allot your expenses. Don't allow your expenses to outgrow the income. If you do, you're going to experience enormous pain, enormous pressure, lots of anxiety. Frankly, one of the ways that you can, actually, um, financially, one of the ways that you can divide the human population is into two financial categories. These are a little bit sophisticated, but hang with me just for a second. One of the categories would be nerd. And the other category would be hippie. You know, we're talking financially, how to divide people up. If you're a nerd, you love numbers. You love to plan and crunch numbers. You love controlling stuff, you know, with numbers. And that's what this feels like. So you just nerd out on this. If you're a financial hippie, you don't like numbers. You just want to kind of go with the flow. You don't like plans. You just want to be free, respond to things as they come. Most marriages consist of one nerd and one hippie. Am I right? And that's part of why in marriage is the number one source of friction and difficulty, money, finances. Money can put huge strains on married couples. This is why wise financial management can make such a a, a tremendous difference. God doesn't want us to live with financial pressure and strain. Marriages can end over large amounts of financial pressure and strain. If you're married every once in a while, even if you're a financial hippie, You need to nerd up. You do, you need to nerd up. You just have to say, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna sit down and put hard work into this. I'm gonna figure out a budget and I am gonna live by it. That's nerding up. When Holly and I got married, like so many couples when they first get married, we had no money. Uh, I was going to grad school. I was painting houses on the side to earn money, you know. And uh, boy, we had to keep track of every single penny coming in and every single penny going out because oftentimes it looked like the pennies weren't gonna, (laughs) they weren't gonna add up and be equal. And um, we just had to be nerdy about the finances. Even though I hated that, we had to do that. Uh, Then there were other seasons in our life too. We started having kids and there were periods of time where we, we just had to nerd up. Every penny counted, every expense mattered and month to month to month, we would monitor these things. During that time too, we would even nerd up on the kids. For example, we got envelopes for all the kids. In fact, my daughter was here in the first service and she says, yeah, I remember that dad, that was a pain. But anyway, anyhow, she learned something through it. We would get on envelopes for the kids and every penny that came Came into them. They would have to put in one of three envelopes. They had a save envelope, they had a spend envelope, and they had a give envelope. And they'd have to keep track of all their numbers, all their money, all their income, and where they were putting their money. It was a great opportunity to talk to them about how to do this. And so let me just ask you, do you have envelopes? How are you doing on this budget deal? Do you have categories of some sort? Can you say, honestly, I have a realistic budget. I know that my income, I, I know what it is and I, I, and I know it's greater than my outflow, my expenses. I keep my expenses below my income. That, that's the first financial indicator. And like I said, 101, I know, I know how basic this is. But I would challenge you, listen to God. Make your mark on that continuum that's there in the program. Is God saying something to you? Is this an area where you need to nerd up Maybe you need to get with your spouse and just have those conversations. What are we spending? What's our income? Are are we living with sanity or insanity in this area? How are you doing on that one? Financial indicator number two, uh, and this is a huge one, freedom from debt. Once again, you can kind of go, ah, freedom from debt. This is important. Am I right when I say debt is a crusher? Again, some of you are financially sophisticated and you would say, well, you know, debt can actually create a great deal of wealth if you leverage it properly and so on. I would just say, okay, if that's you and that's what you're doing and that's working for you, great. But I just have to tell you, as somebody who teaches the Bible, the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about debt and none of it's good. None of it is good. Um, in Proverbs 22, verse seven, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender that's just true. That picture of slavery or bondage, that's very powerful. That's visceral. We feel that. And a whole lot of folks listening right now know exactly what that kind of slavery feels like. Probably all of us have been there at one time or another, if you're not there now. In over our heads, a sense, a feeling of guilt, a feeling of shame. I don't even want to talk about it. There's self-reproach. There's hiding. When you get in debt, you don't really want to discuss that with other people. That's not something you want to be public knowledge. And so then too, sometimes even in our marriages when this happens, we go into avoidance mode. We just don't want to think about it, don't want to wrestle with it, don't want to process it, and that makes everything worse. I've actually sat down with uh, folks before who they have credit card debt, you know, with interest rates, very reasonable interest rates, like 26% and what have you, and they've maxed out a card and they can't pay it. And so they get another card to make payments on the maxed out card. And you can just see where that spiral goes. That's a spiral of financial death. You start getting messages from the collection agencies and you don't wanna hear it. You don't wanna deal with it. That whole cycle is bondage. It's slavery. There's a law practice in Castle Rock. They do a lot of collections work and you can find them by Googling uh, on the internet Uh, squeeze blood out of a a turnip, all (laughs) lowercase.com. And that's what it feels like, doesn't it? When a collection agency is coming after you, it feels like you're the turnip and they're trying to get something out of you that's not inside you. Blood out of a turnip. Folks, realize we live in a culture that encourages us to go there. The two big words when it comes to money in our day, More and now. Get more, get it now. We are bombarded by messages all the time that tell us that the secret, the secret to happiness, the secret sauce is just getting more. Every day we are flooded with commercials and ads and marketing of various kinds that say, you're not content right now, nor should you be, but contentment is just one purchase away. And all these products come into our lives saying, use me, buy me, eat me, try me, drive me, wear me, put me in your hair, put me in your house, buy it, do it, and you'll be content. That's the message. But hear me on this. Between more and contentment, there is a chasm so vast that nobody has ever made the journey. If you're going to live that way and you think that the way to be content is more, 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 you'll never cross over into contentment. It doesn't work that way. The apostle Paul writes to a young man named Timothy, and this is what he says. He says, but godliness, what is godliness? It's living like Jesus. (laughs) That's godliness. Um, But godliness with contentment, he says, is great gain. You want a rich, satisfied life? Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, he says. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that, Paul says. People who want to get rich, that's what they live for. That's what drives them. I want to get rich. I want more, more, more. Well, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow. Wow. You know something, to to know God and to love God, to pursue godliness and find contentment, that is such a good, good thing. But understand this, contentment is a learned skill. It's part of a spiritual journey and the development of a character that is wrapped around a certain set of values, the values that Jesus wrapped his life around. There are basically two philosophies for finding contentment. One of them I've already mentioned, more, 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 now, now, now. That's, that's one philosophy. The other is learn how to be grateful for what you have. Really deeply grateful. The Bible says the first one there, that more, 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 now, 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 that's a sucker's game. That is a sucker's game. That, that game will keep you playing. It has no end, and it certainly doesn't lead to any kind of contentment. We live in a society that just inundates us with more and now more and now. There are all these institutions that will be only too happy to lend you money so that you can have more now. we even have expressions around this in our culture. Buy now, pay later. Have you heard that expression? Yeah. Here's another one. 90 days, same as cash. Oh, really? That's interesting. 90 days, friends, is not the same as cash. At the end of 90 days, that's borrowing that you did turns into credit card debt, not cash, right? Do you know what is the same as cash? cash? Cash. Yeah. It's really interesting. People who do that, they buy something thinking, you know what? We got 90 days. We'll pay it off and uh, we will have had it you know, for 90 days and it will have been like it cost us nothing. Do you know people who do that? 88% of the time they don't pay their, their um, their obligation off in 90 days, 88% of the time. 88% of the time their purchase becomes credit card debt, which means they pay criminal rates of credit card interest. And that's why those offers are so prominent. Credit card companies know this. They want you to think that you can actually buy now and pay later. There's not a bigger lie out there. See, the truth is in the United States, we live under $900 billion worth of credit card debt. That's incredible. And this is why the apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Rome, Rome, of course, was the financial capital of the world, right? He wrote to the church at Rome and he says, let no debt remain outstanding. Get your debts paid off, Paul was saying. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. That's a debt we never exhaust. That's That's a debt we never finish paying. Debt can just be slavery, friends. Uh, some, of us, some of us here are there right now, and we feel that. I want to say just a word about trying to get out of debt because, boy, this can be so crippling. If you're under a load of debt and, and it, you, it's like not seeing any light at the end of the tunnel, um, it, it can be overwhelming. You can get to the point where you just don't want to think about it. You're so crushed by, by it. You feel ashamed. You don't want to talk to anyone about it. And the truth is, uh, there, there is no way around this. The truth is, it does take time and work and discipline to get out of debt. It does. But, but you can get out of debt. Uh, you, you just need a healthy perspective of how to approach it. Anne Lamott wrote a book many years ago. I think it was in the mid-90s. Um, and uh, it, it's a book actually about writing. That's why I read it. Uh, I was, oh, I thought this would be interesting. It's a little book about writing. And, and it was, uh, it's a book called Bird by Bird. Okay. And in that uh, book, she talks about an episode in the life of her brother, her younger brother. He was supposed to write a report on birds, and he put it off, and he put it off, and he put it off until it's the night before the reports due. None of us have ever done that, but he did that. And, uh, and he's just sitting there, and there's books on birds and pictures of birds and all this stuff that he's gathered, you know, with the information he needs to be able to write this report. And he looks at all of it, and he's just overwhelmed. It's just so immense, he starts to weep. And she tells the story that her dad came up and kind of put his arm around his son. Look, he said, son, just take it bird by bird. <laughs> you know, just bird by bird. <laughs> I don't know why that sticks in my mind, but that's exactly what you do when it comes to paying off debt, friends. I mean, the debt pile might be huge, but you gotta attack it bird by bird. Uh, you pick one and you pay it off. Some say pick the, high, the, the uh, loan with the highest rate of interest and tackle that. That makes good financial sense. Guys like Dave Ramsey says, no, pick the smallest debt you got, the smallest outstanding debt, and tackle that When he says. He wrote a book called The Total Money Makeover. It's a great book for people to read, and you may agree or uh, disagree with parts of it, but it had a lot of great advice in there. He talks about what he calls the debt snowball. And I think he's right. He says, make a list of all your debts. Put the smallest debt there at the top. And then he says, begin to pay off the smallest debt first. Ask God for help because you're going to need it. And then, well, that's true. You're going to need it. Because paying off debt, again, is not, it's not mostly about brains and being super savvy. It's mostly about motivation and determination and sticking to it. Discipline, you see. There's something about when you take that first one and the smallest one and you get it paid off. You get this sense of, wow, I can do this. It's possible. With God's help, I can actually pay down this debt. And it's like a snowball rolling downhill. It gets bigger and bigger. It gets faster and faster. And so once you pay off one debt, you get excited. You realize, man, I think I could pay off another one. I might even be able to do it faster. And it's that snowball effect. And suddenly what seemed like a dark, hopeless tunnel does have some light at the end of it. It's bird by bird, you see. Uh, Now, Dave Ramsey also talks about about something else that's helpful. He talks about a a plastectomy. (laughs) He says, you know what? If you keep adding to your debt with credit cards, you must cut them up because they're a constant source of increased debt. You must cut them up, a plastectomy. Stop using them. That way you don't keep increasing your debt. Now, uh, that's the financial health indicator number two, freedom from debt. Ask yourself, get get out the program. Ask yourself, uh, can, can I honestly say I am free from debt or I have a plan, I'm working the plan, I'm sticking to it. Make your mark. Where are you on that scale? Make your mark, okay? Third thing, wise saving. Again, the Bible talks about, you with me? Okay, the Bible talks about this in very concrete ways uh, as it usually does. Proverbs 21. In the house of the wise are stores of choice, food, and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. You see, they lived again in an agricultural economy, and so food and crops and olive oil, these were resources, uh, and and having them meant you had assets, you see. The point is, is that wise people save, fools don't. That's the point. The Wall Street Journal says, and this is a shocking statistic to me. The Wall Street Journal says that in our day, 70% of all Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Wow. Now, I did a little research on this. 14.5% of Americans are said to live below the poverty level. And maybe, you know, there's all kinds of systemic issues surrounding that. Uh, that's for another sermon. They need You know, things need to be fixed there. But, you know, if 14.5% of the population live below uh, the poverty level and they're living paycheck to paycheck, okay, we could talk about that. But 70% of all Americans, according to the Wall Street Journal, live paycheck to paycheck. That means that 55% of that 70% is living paycheck to paycheck. They don't really have to, they just choose to. They just choose to have their outflow equal their inflow. And that's a huge problem. It's the guy who's doing great, right? He sells real estate. Oh man, the market is booming. Woo, yeah. I don't need a budget, I'm making tons of money. And so without knowing it, he's overspending and he doesn't save and he buys a great house and drives great cars and goes on great vacations. He enjoys a great lifestyle. He's also growing a great debt that he's not that aware of because he spends more than he makes and he doesn't save and he buys on credit. He's convinced he's living the good, the great life. And then one day, the market corrects or something happens to his health things you can't predict. And this guy who was making lots of money is devastated. He loses his great house and his great cars and his great lifestyle, but guess what? He doesn't lose his great debt. That stays right with him. And he and his wife now are under unbelievable strain and pressure and conflict. And it's all because he just neglected something the Bible talked about a long, long time ago. And again, it's put in really colorful, concrete language in Proverbs, here in Proverbs 27. Be sure you know, those are the key words. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. For your riches do not endure forever. Wow. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. Be sure you know, give careful attention. We can put it like this. Be sure you know how much you have set aside for an emergency for the unexpected, because if there's one thing you can expect, it will be the unexpected. That's going to happen. You know, something bad is going to happen eventually. And even even if it's not cataclysmic, guess what? Something bad is happening to you right now. Do you know what it is? You're aging. You can't stop it. Be sure you know how much is in your 401k. Be sure you know how much you are setting aside for your children's education. Be sure you know how much you have saved for your retirement. Be sure you know. Now we blow that off all the time. Ah, eh, I'm, I'm sure I'm fine. I was reading this last week, how a lot of employers offer matching donations to retirement funds for their employees. This article said that every year, $24 billion goes unclaimed because employees are just too lazy to sign the form and make their own small contribution. It reminds me of a verse. I think it says, "Geteth a brain, saith the Lord. (laughs) Uh, I think it's First Retirement, chapter 40, verse 1. Anyway. (laughs) Be sure you know. Pay careful attention to how you are doing in this area of savings. Ask yourself, am I saving what I should be saving? Again, uh, this is just between you and God. Really honest. Make your mark. Uh, Yes, I am saving what I should be saving. Use that scale. And uh, then uh, the next uh, indicator here. Number four. And, you know... You, this is about generosity. This is about giving. And of course, you knew I was going to talk about that. I'm a pastor. This is a church. So you knew this was coming. This is all about living a life of generosity. I would even say that this one, number four, undergirds all the others. If you want financial health in your life, this is something you've got to give serious consideration to. Um, here's the deal. The most important reason for you to manage your money well is simply this. It's not your money. Do you understand that? It is not your money. You didn't bring it into the world and you are not taking it out of the world with you. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's what the Bible says. You and I, you see, are stewards. One of the biggest problems in our lives financially is we actually think that everything that we possess is ours. It is not. It is not. Friends, this is the financial indicator I do think that probably matters most because it lays the groundwork for how you do what you do with the other three. It's all about generosity. To be about generosity talks about this all through the Bible. He, he has the prophet Malachi say to his people, the people of Israel, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. He challenges them with this. And uh, as far as we know, tithing was a practice unique to Israel. We don't know of any other people anywhere that would practice this thing of taking 10% of their resources and giving them back to God. It was an expression of trust. Believe me, it's an expression of trust. You're giving something back to God saying God's gonna take care of me. And uh, this was something that God gave his people to cultivate generosity in them. None of the other ancient peoples, again, that we know of uh, practiced this, but faithful Israelites did. God says, bring the whole tithe that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And again, this is so weird. I know of no other command in scripture, no other place in scripture from God where he tells his people to test him. In fact, there are places in scripture like Deuteronomy 6 where we're told clearly, do not test the Lord your God. But it's as if God knows how much in bondage, how much we live in bondage to this thing of money, this thing of our stuff. We clutch on the stuff. We clutch on the money. It's as if we think that our money is our salvation and our security. And that's really the problem. How many of you saw recently the winner in the lottery? You know, this lady, how much did she win? Yeah, but how much did she take home? Why do we know this? What did you think when you saw this? I'll tell you what you thought. Now, I don't mean to be, I'm just, I'm just telling you what you thought. You thought, damn it. I wish that had been me. Because if I had won that, That's the golden ticket. That's my salvation. That's my security. That's where my hope is. If I had that money, everything would be okay. That's a lie. That's a lie, friends. It's not the truth. God says, uh, you know, Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That's that's a challenge and a promise from God. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you what you need. Just honor me in this. Just trust me in this. He says, how are you doing with that? You know, early in our marriage, uh, Holly and I, um, we, we had to make a decision about this. It was forced on us. I was working in a church. I've told some of this part of the story before. I was working in a church. They wanted me to teach a, a, a part of their new members class. Part of the new members class was about tithing. Well, we weren't tithing. I mean, we, we gave randomly, you know, whenever we felt like it, if the message was any good. As long as the message wasn't on tithing, we, we might give something. <laughs> But, you know, uh, and anyhow, and all of a sudden, it's, it's foisted on me that I have to teach this subject, and I started diving into it, and I'm, you know, I'm studying stuff to, in preparation for teaching this class, and I'm saying, Holly, Holly, this is not good news here. This is incredible. This is, this is not what we're practicing. This, we're not doing this, but it seems to be saying, you know, here's what a tithe is. Here's what God seems to say. What are we going to do with this? And uh, that was good for us. And uh, it, it, it forced upon us to, ha- so we had to think what we were gonna do, how we were going to live. It was very early on in our marriage. How are we gonna do this stuff of, of finances? And so we said, you know what? We're gonna do it. Um, you know, I was on a path to go into the ministry and it, it doesn't work real well when you, you just commit right up front that you're gonna preach about stuff you're not gonna do. That is a problem for us. I, I mean, you know... <laughs> Uh, that's a pro- but it's not good if that's where you start. You know, oh, well, I'm gonna preach about this. I'm gonna tell people what they ought to do, but I'm not gonna do it. And so we decided we would, and we've always done that. We've always given that tithe to the local church, and then above that, uh, you know, there are other things that God brings into your life. How many of you have relatives that went to the mission field and they asked you for support? Any of you? Don't you just hate that? <laughs> I mean, you can't say no, can you? I mean, golly, you know. No, we've had a lot of relatives that have gone to the mission field. And of course, we didn't handle it that way. I know that you did, but, um, you know. And so, but God brings people and their, and their circumstances and their call and their mission in front of you. And then, and then it's up to you to pray about and think about is this something also God wants us to participate in? And so we're, uh, we've had the chance to do that in people's lives and ministries uh, over the years. And I've got to tell you, I am glad we have practiced this in our life. I can't really know this for sure, but I have a hunch, this might be true, that the greatest contribution that Holly and I have made into the kingdom of Jesus, it may well be financial when it's all said and done. And I I am glad that I have had the privilege to invest in things that are a part of Jesus' mission. That's been a big blessing in our life. And we've done that many times when it, maybe financially you could say, I'm not sure if this makes a lot of sense, but it was an issue of trust and and we felt we needed to. And I would just ask you, what are you doing? Are you trusting God with your finances? Are you trusting God with a tithe? If not, I would say to you, you need to. Because when you take this kind of a step, you're getting God directly involved in your finances. And you may need to ask Jesus to give you a generous heart. I confess, when we started that practice, it didn't come out of a you know, overflowing, generous heart. It came out of a conviction that I was gonna teach something that in fact I wasn't doing. And I wrestled with the teaching and I thought, you know what, we should be doing this. But the more we practiced it, the more we found joy actually in doing it. And don't, don't be mistaken, this is very important to God. It really is. It's very, very important to God. Uh, there are certain uh, ideas, certain concepts in the Bible that you could call key concepts, key ideas. It's kind of an interesting study to see how often they are mentioned in scripture. For example, belief, faith, and Greek words like that, uh, you find them in scripture 272 times. Uh, prayer is another obvious, real important thing, and, and prayer gets mentioned 371 times. Fear not, a big problem, because we are fearful people, and the scriptures tell us fear not uh, some 365 times. This idea of giving and generosity, it crops up up in scripture 2,162 times. And there's a reason for that. It's because the whole thing of giving and generosity is literally connected to the heart of God. You know, the most famous verse in the Bible is for God so loved the world. There's the reason. It's love, it's motivated out of his heart, but because of that, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, giving is always a heart deal. It's always directly connected to your heart. It's all about who and what you love. It's not intended by God as an obligation. It's not intended as a rule that you're supposed to observe with a grudging spirit. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, uh, he was encouraging them to give a gift and he said, give it not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And that word cheerful is the word we get our word hilarious from. <laughs> Paul wanted them laughing up a storm, you know, as, as they get, I mean, give with joy is the idea. And as I said, when you practice giving, I think eventually you get there. If you wonder what, uh, what does God think about when people get selfish with their stuff, if you wonder what does God think about when people clutch and hoard and hold and say, mine, this is mine. Uh, James, who is James? James is Jesus' brother, which is interesting. It means he grew up watching Jesus and then as an adult, he related to Jesus. So James who watches uh, his brother, Jesus, uh, writes to a church where they were showing a lot of favoritism around money In fact, in this church, they had special seating set aside for people who were wealthy, right? And so the people in the front row are the wealthy people. Oh, you come right down here and you sit in the front, you see. And uh, they would give him these, these special places to sit and, and special kinds of honor and things of that nature. Well, James kind of uh, explodes that whole thing that's going on in the churches that he writes to. And this is what James writes. Now, hold, hold on to your hat here because this is strong language, okay? James, the brother of Jesus says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Woo, okay. Your wealth has rotted, and it's it's because they're hoarding it. They're holding on to it. It's just for them. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. It's just about them. And you have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. And then James says this, he says, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. You know, wow. All of us here are wealthy. By almost any standard you would pick pick or choose. Uh, You got any questions on that passage? (laughs) You want me to break it down line by line? Please, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Anything not clear here? You see, the Bible is terribly direct on this and, and we need to hear it because you're not going to hear any of this coming anywhere from our culture. Our culture screams more and now. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus lived a different message. Jesus who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. And I would just encourage you, how are you doing on this? Make your mark, make your mark. How are you doing on this, on this thing of generosity? So, uh, you know, spiritual health last week, absolutely vitally important. Uh, financial health, absolutely vitally important. Next week, we're gonna talk about relational health. Financial health, are you living on a budget? Are you living free from debt? Are you being wise? Are you saving? Are you living generously? Make your mark. And I wanna say, you know, money is just part of living in the kingdom of God. It's a tool that God gives us to use. Money comes and money goes. And when we use it for eternal purposes, it makes an eternal difference. And we have folks here at Deer Creek Church that take their finances very seriously. Uh, they're very sac- much sacrificial givers, and their giving literally makes the things that we do here and, and, and out there as a, as a family makes those things possible. And we are immensely grateful uh, to sacrificial giving. You heard Kirk stand up here and talk about last year, you blew us all away. We really didn't know what to expect. We're going to do something like that again this Christmas. We've got another project in mind. And uh, I even encourage you to start thinking about what, how, you know, you can contribute. But uh, we are, Holly and I are. Uh, but you blew us away with your generosity. And, and this church is very generous. Uh, Friends, when you invite God into your financial life, when you surrender your finances and you start to go on a spiritual journey, that gets God in your finances. That grows your trust factor. That teaches you that God is a providing God. And all you're going to hear from our culture, very simple, more, 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 now, now, now. And that is not, that's not the road or the path to contentment. What a cool thing would be if as a church, instead of more, 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 now, 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 we became a people who were able to say humbly to Jesus, yours, yours, yours. We get it. We're the stewards, you're the owner. That would be so cool. Pray with me. God, we we bring our whole hearts to you, our whole lives to you, including our financial lives. We acknowledge that this money thing is way beyond us, God. This developing a generous heart is not something we can do. It's something you must do in us. We get really heated up over stuff like money, Lord. We think it's going to bring us happiness and security and identity. And then something happens and it all comes crashing down, a failure, a heartbreak, life, death kinds of things. And we remember money is not you, God. Money comes and money goes. Money did not die on the cross for our sins, Lord. Only you did that. We would ask you, Father, to bring the love and the care and the tenderness and the hope and the comfort that money and success and possessions can never bring us, but you can. Would you bring, Lord, the freedom and the love and the mercy that only Jesus can give us We thank you for all you do for us, Lord. Help us live generously the way Jesus is generous to us. We pray in his name. Amen.